Thank you. <clears throat> it has been a blessed day musically. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 16, please. First Chronicles chapter 16. Had a momentary scare tonight, had a conversation with the sound guys about what the passage was. And I went into panic mode <clears throat> that I was preaching the wrong passage tonight. And, but I think, I think we got it. I think we got it figured out. <clears throat> so maybe when I get done, you will go, yep, that was the wrong passage. But we will not start there. Let's go ahead and stand, please. We're going to read together the first seven verses. That's actually not our portion. I mentioned this morning that it would be a lengthier portion, but we will read that as we work our way through the passage. So chapter 16, beginning in verse number 1 of First Chronicles, So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. And when David had made an end of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And he dealt to every one of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone a loaf of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. And he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, Next to him, Zechariah, Jael, Shemeramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, and Eliab, and Benaiah, and Obed-Edom, and Jael with psalteries and with harps. But Asaph made a sound with cymbals. Benaiah also, and Jehaziel the priest, with trumpets continually before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David delivered first this psalm to thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph, and his brethren. And let's stop there and we will pray. Father, how grateful we are for your work in saving us and help us, Father, to fully appreciate the time you have taken through the course of years to piece by piece lay the foundation for the great kingdom that will come, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To present it to us in pictures, to show both its beauty and its weaknesses, its strengths and its failures at the human level, so that we might appreciate the perfection of that which is to come. Bless our time together this evening. Make it profitable for us spiritually, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. <clears throat> well, again, the chronicler continues to magnify the, the life of David and the way that God used David in the nation of Israel. Particularly, particularly the religious side of the kingdom under David. The military successes play a part, but even they contribute to his religious successes, if you will. The, the, the funds that he capture in his many battles he will soon use to dedicate to the preparation of the temple. 
All that goes on in the chroniclers with chronicles with reference to David is oriented around the worship life of Israel. He doesn't talk about Bathsheba's sin, not out of embarrassment, not out of ignorance, but out of the fact that his task is not to give to us a biography of David, but a biography of the religious worship of the people, something that they are expected to restore even in their very weakened state. Much of Chronicles, we will get to this eventually, will be dealing with David's introduction of music into the worship of Israel. All the years in the wilderness, all the days of moving the temple, of carrying, or the tabernacle, carrying it from place to place, all the men that moved, all of the individual components, there was no music. It was David who brings music to worship. The passage before us this evening is actually beginning in verse number 7 and down through the end of the chapter, verse number 43. And I want to walk through the chapter really two ways and then we'll come back and look at, make some applications from it. I want to just begin by talking about the structure of the passage and then we'll look at the substance of the passage and then we'll make some applications from the passage. So let's begin then by just talking about the way God has arranged the material in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Almost everything that is found in 1 Chronicles 16 is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's not new material. It's already there. Which of course then raises the question of why we would go back and do it again. In a book that spans the entirety of human history as the Bible does, in a book that is so condensed and is so intense in the information it conveys, what is the point of going back and writing an entire book when you could simply take a page and go, look at this chapter, look at this chapter in this book, look at this chapter in this book. These are things that I want you to note. So here is as good a place as any to talk a little bit about the way God communicates to us. We know that the Bible is an inspired book. That doesn't mean that every word of the Bible magically fell to us from heaven. That is not what inspiration means, and that is not the way the inspired authors viewed what they were doing. When you go back and you read, and the source material for First Chronicles is mostly Second Samuel, and much of the material for Second Chronicles is going to be what to us are First and Second Kings, but which was to the Hebrews just simply the Book of Kings. That material is what we would call historically a primary source. In other words, it is written about current events. Let's put it that way. When you're reading Samuel, even if it's David's fight with Goliath, or when you're reading about the kings and all of their many failings and defeats and shenanigans, when you're reading about Solomon and his wives and the building of the temple, when you're reading it in Samuel and Kings, you're reading current events, history that is happening in that moment. But the history of Chronicles is a history that comes much, much later, hundreds of years later. And it functions as kind of then what we call a secondary source. And folks, this is not just academia. This is 
an important way of communicating information even if it's not inspired. If you went to your personal library and found a biography, maybe the great American preacher Jonathan Edwards or maybe a historical figure like George Washington, any decent biography that is written about that person is going to be what is called a secondary source. If the author has been diligent in his work, he is going to have consulted primary sources. That person's own letters, that person's own documents. Any biography of Jonathan Edwards that is going to be a true comprehensive biography is going to have many references to things that Jonathan Edwards actually said. It's not simply going to be a collection of things that people said about Jonathan Edwards. That's the way literature works. That's the way good communication works. And in this instance, that's the way the Bible works. God has superintended this information for us by having many years after the fact, this man come along and God has moved him in the arrangement of the material for his specific purposes. It is not simply a repetition of 2 Samuel. And when we get, for instance, into 1 Chronicles chapter 22, we will encounter information that you don't find any other place in the Bible. Information that God had the chronicler incorporate that you will not find in Samuel. But that is not our purpose here. It is just simply to point out to us that God has a fascinating and realistic and very solidly methodological method of communicating his truth to us, giving to us his words. So almost everything in 1 Chronicles is found elsewhere in the Bible. Secondly, I want to call your attention specifically to verse number 7. And this is really going to be particularly for those of you that are holding King James Bibles in your hands. Then on that day, David delivered first, and now you notice that the next two words are in italics. This psalm. This psalm. To thank the Lord into the hand of Asaph and his brethren. And we know, folks, that when we see italicized words in the King James Bible, that our translators have put them that way for a specific point. And that is, in their diligence to translate the Bible, which they are trying to do word for word, which is very challenging to translate every word in one language into every word in another language. There are times that they have had to help us and aid us in that translation by supplying words that would not necessarily be found in the original language. This psalm is one of those places. This psalm is one of those places. And here's why we care about that, folks. I'm not trying to nitpick the King James Bible. But as we will see in a little bit, this is not a psalm. This is actually portions of three psalms. And we know that, folks, again, because... The man who is used, God is using to write chronicles is reciting from the Psalms themselves. Psalms that David wrote. And so if you just look at that and you just race past it and you think that 1 Chronicles 16 contains a singular psalm, you're not going to catch what is really going on in the chapter. 
It is not a singular psalm. It is selected portions from three psalms. The, the man went to three different psalms and extracted portions from three different psalms. As we will see, as I will argue, to make three different points. All pertinent to the nation of Israel in their particular situation as they found it in that day. I want to pass over that with the exception of just simply making a note about it. So, verses 8 through 22 come from Psalm 105. Verses 23 through 33 come from Psalm 96. And verses 34 through 36 come from, come from Psalm 106. And again, that's very easy to document, folks, because I've given you the reference and if you have a study Bible, it's probably giving you the reference. And you can go back and look at those. We'll, we'll walk through those, past, those verses in a few minutes. So verse number 7 points out to us that David gave psalm. All right? That's the way they're dealing with it as a single. I'm not finding fault with that other than to point out to you it is a composition from three psalms. The Jews knew that, and now we know that. Then I want to call your attention finally to verses 37 through 43. Verse number 37, so he left there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Asaph and his brethren, which if you recall, we saw Asaph and his brothers in verse number 7. They're the bookend to this psalm that David recorded. So he left there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Asaph and his brethren to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with their brethren, threescore and eight, Obed-Edom also the son of Jeduthan and Hosea to be porters. Alright? Stop. Again, we just want to make sure that we note these things carefully and don't just race through them and miss over them. Verses 36 and 37 are describing events that happen in the city of Jerusalem. He left there. Verse 37. He left there. Where is there? 16.1, they brought the ark of God, set it in the midst of the tent that David had offered burnt sacrifices. Where is this? It's all Jerusalem. So this is happening in the city of Jerusalem. But verses 39 through 42 are not Jerusalem. Verses 39 describe events that are happening elsewhere. Verse number 39 and Zadok the priest, and his brethren the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon, to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord upon the altar of the burnt offering continually, morning and evening, and to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel, and with them Heman and Jeduthun, and the rest that were chosen who were expressed by name, to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endureth forever. And with them Heman and Jeduthan with trumpets and cymbals for those that should make a sound, and with musical instruments of God, and the sons of Jeduthan were porters. And then verse 43, all the people departed every man to his house, and David returned to bless his house. So verses 39 through 42 happen in Gibeon, and we are told that the tabernacle was in Gibeon. And a couple of weeks ago, I think I said inadvertently, accidentally, 
that the tabernacle was gone, but it is obviously not gone because it exists at Gibeon. Gibeon is a city that is about five miles away from Jerusalem. Not a huge deal to us, but a five-mile walk is still a significant walk. Now, because we're just talking about the structure, let me point this out, folks. This poses no small dilemma to us. That there are two distinct places of worship in the nation of Israel. That the tabernacle and almost all of its furniture are at Gibeon, but the ark is not. It is in Jerusalem. How can you have true worship in, true pla- in, in two places when God has decreed that worship can only happen in the place that he picks? And there is, by the way, no record that God has ever picked Gibeon as a place of worship. And again, we're not going to go down this rabbit hole because there's no escaping it. But there are lots of questions about why Gibeon is called a high place when high places are most always, that's almost always a code word for bad worship is happening here. Whenever you read about a high place in the Bible, that's rarely mentioned in a good light. A high place. Just the very concept of a high place, folks, is in violation of a fundamental scriptural principle by God. Why do we worship in high places closer to God? For the same reason that in the Middle Ages we began to build massive temples that carried your eyes upward to the heavens where God was for the same reason that we built the Tower of Babel to climb to the heavens where God is. God is in the heavens. Let's get closer to God. Biblically, you don't get closer to God by climbing a tree. Gibeon, and we'll come back to this, is really a religious site that is oriented only around King Solomon. So there's the structure of the passage, right? I just, right? I just wanted to talk about the structure. That <clears throat> there are things going on in the passage that we would be good to note. We want to make sure we note geography and movements and changes in geography. And we want to be careful as to what's being told to us about the content. With that then, let's move to the substance. To the substance of the passage. What is happening in the passage? Well, in verses 1 through 7 that we just read, the ark is finally, after many problems, brought to the capital city of Jerusalem, where it is formally installed, we might say. David builds a tent that will cover it, and that is where God's presence is to reside. And there is this celebration, a a nationwide celebration and David gives out of his personal bounty to all of the people provision is made for worship there and not just occasional worship but regular systematic worship and David who has his own keen personal interest in worship then has this to say has this to say. 
So with that, let's turn our attention then, beginning in verse number 8. And verses 8 through 22, again, folks, are found in Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 15. This is what David said, Give thanks unto the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people, sing unto Him, sing psalms unto Him, talk ye of all His wondrous works, glory ye in His holy name. Let the heart of them that rejoice that seek the Lord, seek the Lord and His strength, seek His face continually. Remember His marvelous works that He has done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. O ye seed of Israel, His servant, ye children of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Be ye mindful always of His covenant, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations, even of the covenant which He made with Abraham, and of his oath unto Isaac, and hath confirmed the same to Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance, when ye were but few, even as a few, even a few, and strangers in it. And when they went from nation to nation, and from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. What is the point of that portion of Psalm 105? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, folks, is that the emphasis is that the relationship that Israel enjoys with God is a relationship of perpetual covenant. A covenant made to a thousand generations. Now again, folks, Psalm 105 is a beautiful psalm. But imagine the particular meaning that it is supposed to have to this small band of people who after watching their entire city and way of life destroyed and being carried away as captives to another country are permitted to go back home and begin the process of rebuilding. And if you'll read Nehemiah and Ezra, you know what a daunting task it is. You read about Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild just the defensive wall. And you read about in Zephaniah and Haggai and Ezra, you read about the incredible challenges that came to the people in rebuilding the temple. And even when they rebuilt it, it was just a dinky thing that in no way compared to what Solomon built. But we are God's covenant people. And remember, there was a time when there wasn't very many of us to begin with. And God took care of us. And God protected us. And God even rebuked kings for our sakes. And God wouldn't let his spokesman be harmed. Just fascinating, folks. The vast majority of damage that came to God's prophets came from the Jews themselves. Not from invading armies. 
And part of the promise was a covenant of land, land that they had lost and had only recently regained. Land that had laid barren for 70 years. The fields were not tilled, the fences were not mended, the houses were not repaired. But they have a covenant with God and he has given them land and they're back in that land. Sing to the Lord. Verses 23 through 33 are taken from Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13. Sing unto the Lord, all the earth. Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, or among the nations, really. His marvelous works among all nations. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give unto the Lord, ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. The world also is, shall be stable, that it be not moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let men say among the nations, the Lord reigneth. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the fields rejoice with all that is therein. Then shall the trees of the wood sing out at the presence of the Lord because he cometh to judge the earth. Verses 8 through 22, God is their covenant God. Verses 23 through 33, God is their king. But he is not just their king, he is everybody's king. He is the king of the earth. He made it and it all belongs to him. And so God is to be praised in verse number 23 throughout all the earth. Among all the nations, verse number 24, the Goyim, the Gentiles. And he is the God above all gods, verse number 25, to be feared above all the deities. And again, folks, just imagine how that would sound to people who, if they were to be honest, would have to admit that the last 500 years of their lives, of their history, has been chasing false deities. When God was really turning the heat up on them, when God was really beginning to bring the Babylonians and the enemy was at the gate and the end was in sight. What were the Jews doing? Not consulting Jehovah, but consulting their false deities. And when the Babylonians came and took everything and destroyed everything, what did the Israelites say to, Je say to Jeremiah? We don't want to hear about Jehovah. It was better for us when we worshiped the other gods than it is for us now. Fear the Lord. He is the God above all gods. God made everything, verse 26. So he is to be praised and he is to be feared 
And we are to rejoice in Him because He reigns. Our God is King. And then verses 34 through 36, folks, as we look at the substance of this psalm. Our God is a covenant God. He has committed Himself to us. Our God is the King of the universe. And our God is our Savior. Verses 34 through 36. O give thanks unto the Lord for He is good. This comes from Psalm 106 verses 47 and 48. O give thanks unto the Lord for He is good for His mercy endureth forever. And say ye, save us, O God of our salvation. And gather us together and deliver us from the heathen that we may give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. Praise the Lord. So again, folks, this is not a single psalm. It could be a single psalm. There's would be nothing wrong with it as a single psalm, but the man that God used to write Chronicles went to the Psalms and found portions that were specific to the situation and need of Israel to proclaim to them that their God was a covenant God and He would, could be relied upon to provide for them. And that all the earth belonged to Him and He was still in charge and that He was still their Savior and He would save them. So then finally, just a few words of application to us. What do we, the church, do with this? Well, I think it should go without saying, folks, that our responsibility is to be the same as that of the Psalms commanding all of God's people whenever they are at any time, that we are to rejoice in God and celebrate God and to place our hope in God and to sing to God and to trust Him because we too are His covenant people. We too are his covenant people. God has made promises to himself. Promise, I'm sorry, promises to us that are based upon his character, not our conduct. There is, I think, folks, a sense in which we can relate more to the people of Chronicles than we can to the people in David's day. These are not particularly great days for the church. We are not experiencing a broad and wide interest in religion, are we? These are not the days in which we can tally up new baptisms and new members at an alarming rate. We will get to this in a couple of weeks in Sunday school. But in the earliest days of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, in his small town, tabulated that 25% of the young people in his town came to a saving faith in Christ and were brought into membership in his church. 300 people in a six-month span. 300 people. One church, one village, one time. 
These are not the greatest of days for the local New Testament church. And much of what is going on in many churches is not really anchored in anything that the Bible teaches or demands or insists upon. It is the consequence of sincere people earnestly desiring to figure out what it is to do to make empty pews filled with people. And yet we are still God's covenant people and we still have a great hope. That's the way we should view it, that God will be faithful to his word. That's the way they were to view it. We have a covenant, we have a king, we have a savior that has not changed. No matter how the ebb and flow of popularity goes, those are the foundations of our existence. Secondly, I think that we should learn to understand and appreciate what David obviously understood and appreciated about worship. Let me ask you, if you would, please, to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3. The chronicler made reference to the ark being in Jerusalem and the tabernacle being in Gibeon. Let's read the current event account of that. First Kings chapter 3 and verse number 1. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh king of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. And you know the rest of that story. We're not going to read it. It is the passage in which Solomon asked for wisdom. Now I mentioned, folks, that there is no end of perplexity as to two places of worship and God's attitude about two places of worship. But it certainly appears from 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, that Solomon's love for the Lord was sincere and real and that God responded to it with a personal appearance. It's not an endorsement of worshiping in high places, but it is, I think, a commentary on worship in general. David understood something about worship, folks, that many Jews did not. David, Old Testament David, understood 
that worship was ultimately a matter of human heart. It certainly had to be oriented around Bible truth, but the worship was a matter of human heart. How could God tolerate true worship at Gibeah when he had never commanded true worship at Gibeah? Part of the answer is, is that true worship is not confined to a single space. Psalm 51, 15, you know the passage, David's great confession after Bathsheba. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise, for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Now, God had ordered worship, and part of Jewish worship was animal sacrifices. But that should never have been interpreted by thinking that simply throwing a dead animal God's way was all that was required. Any more folks that thinking while God commands his people to be in church, simply walking in the building fulfills the requirement. Just, I was there. We're sitting stone-faced through the song service, but I was there. Or singing the words without paying any attention to any of the words we sing, but I was there. I'm always there. But that is not true worship. Worship is a matter of genuine human response. It is a matter of genuine human understanding and appreciation. It is the response of people to the true greatness of God. Not just a mechanical ritualistic performing of walking in a building, even of writing a check. It's what we always do. So how could Solomon offer good worship at Gibeah? Well, again, academically, folks, the theologians go back and forth, was it good or bad? But I, I think that there is a sense there and appreciation for the true spirit of worship. Not that we get to worship any old way that we want. That would never be the case. All worship must be governed by truth. But a mechanical enslavement to truth is not true worship either. It must be a worship of the Spirit. David is a king who wanted the nation of Israel to worship God truthfully, obediently, Sincerely. And this is what God wants for us now. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> may we never think <clears throat> that we just get to invent worship <clears throat> that appeals to us or makes us feel good. It must always be governed by truth. But 
neither should we think that mindless mechanical church attendance, may it never be at Westwood Heights, mindless mechanical singing, Bible reading, giving, serving, may they never be at Westwood Heights. They cannot be pleasing to you in any way. May we love you with the fullness of our hearts, with the fullness of our wills. Confident that you are our covenant God, our great King, and our only Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.